0: Before we get into today's discussion on chapters 11 through 13, I just have a few quick announcements. Firstly, to all who celebrated it last week, I want to wish a very merry and happy Christmas. As we begin to turn the page on what has been a rough 2020, I hope everyone can still look back on some special moments in this holiday season. I won't be dropping gifts under anyone's tree, but I will be dropping some exciting announcements on January 7th, so stay tuned. I want to also take a moment to thank everyone who's been on this incredible journey with me since the show first started. This will obviously be the last episode airing in 2020, so there's a lot for me to reflect on about what starting and growing Outer M. Reads has meant for me. Ultimately, I do love this show, but it wouldn't be anywhere near where it is today without a wonderful community of listeners. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you all so much for your support. We're just getting started. Now it's time for a segment we like to call Search Your Readings. Last episode's discussion question was aboard the leverage, we see Rail complicit in and even taking advantage of the fact that the Zerka Corporation uses slaves. Though he gives his reasons, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan remain skeptical. Do you agree with Rail's excuse? Do you think Rail has grown numb to the human rights violations around him because of the luxury and power of his post? Is this a byproduct of Qui-Gon's fears that often the Jedi may be raised with a blind eye towards these kinds of struggles in the galaxy? And we have a couple of answers from Twitter. Sarlacc Digest wrote, quote, I think Rael was so messed up from losing his Padawan that he chose to overlook everything else, rationalizing that it was all for Fannery, showing how dangerous it was to bring in older students that were more able to build attachments. And Heather Murray answered, quote, I immediately felt like he was misleading himself by telling Qui-Gon that he had to, quote, play the game. That's obviously a slippery slope. Rail has let himself become more and more comfortable with the slave culture to the point where I don't think he cares how long his game takes. Thank you all so much for those answers. Those were some really great insights. And listen in before the credit roll for our next discussion question. With all that said, let's get into episode 26 of Outer Rim Reeds. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 26 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, we will be breaking down chapters 11 through 13 of Master and Apprentice, and I'm joined today by my good friend Keith Beringer, Keith, how are you doing, man? Thank you so much for making the time to come on the show to talk to Master and Apprentice.
1: Oh, I'm very happy to be here. I mean, I don't have a podcast or anything <laughs> talking about Star Wars, so I appreciate you lowering your standards enough to allow me on here. <laughs> been looking forward to this for a long time.
0: We have been talking about getting you on the show for a while, and I'm, I'm glad to finally make it happen. And and just, you know, so <laughs> just so you don't hype yourself down too much, I will say when... It's part of my charm. <laughs> it's part of your charm. <laughs> I'll say when um, when I guess I kind of like first officially introduced myself to you, I had suspected that I'd seen like some Star Wars patches on your backpack and oh. I knew that you were a fan, but I didn't know uh, like how big of a fan you were until, you know, we actually started talking. So you are very qualified to come on the show and to talk about some Star Wars. So <laughs> no standards have been lowered today. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of your Star Wars fandom, do you mind giving the listeners an idea of kind of where you stand with the Star Wars universe and then specifically? specifically with master and apprentice
1: talking about the uh, patches on my backpack i've got the new republic special forces and (laughs) i used to have a rogue squadron one on there but it fell off unfortunately uh i've been a fan of star wars ever since i was a little kid i mean watching them on vhs way back (laughs) in the day that's a sign of how old i am (laughs) that's the original trilogy watching them and then I really became a fan when my parents bought me the uh, the Star Wars X-Wing books. Mm. Yeah, those were like my favorite of all the Star Wars books. And then at one point, I was working as a security guard, and I did security at the LucasArts building in San Rafael, where they made all the Star Wars video games. I didn't know that. <laughs>
0: wow. Okay.
1: This was, like, right before Episode 3 came out, and so I'd be doing security rounds, and I would see, like, concept art for Revenge of the Sith posted up on the walls. It's like, oh, my God, that's a picture of Emperor Palpatine with a lightsaber. Oh, my God. (laughs) Then in between rounds, I'd just be sitting there at the receptionist desk, fiddling on the computer, and, like, the only internet I could get on there was access to the Star Wars database. Not a bad thing. (laughs) Yeah, I'd just be sitting there, like, looking through all these articles, going down a black hole of Star Wars knowledge...
0: That is a really good way to spend your time. I I am glad that you were not on security detail at the Jedi Temple during, you know, episode 3, Order 66. So I'm glad to see that you made it. Uh, (laughs) Hey, had I been, things would have turned out differently. Exactly. Whole different story from then on. Uh, that is that is really cool. I did not know that. That has just increased your credentials like tenfold. Now. <laughs> uh, how... Yay! I'm special. <laughs> you are. What about uh? What about Master and Apprentice? How did you
1: get introduced to the book? Uh, I had yeah. seen the book before, and unfortunately, I don't have as much time for free reading as I like to. Yeah. And so, when I heard you were going to be doing the book for this podcast, I'm like, okay. That just settles it. I need to get this book. And, you know, yes, I got the audiobook rather than the physical thing, but still, your podcast inspired me to get into it, and I am very happy that I did. I'm glad that you did. I'm glad to have you on.
0: I do have to ask, because I have not done an audiobook for Star Wars yet. I've hear, I hear that they are very high in quality, though the question I do have, did Liam Neeson
1: voice Qui-Gon, or did he not? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Uh... It's... <laughs> They, they have the same guy who narrates and voices all the characters, and they could not get Liam Neeson for it, sadly. Did he do a good enough job? <laughs> I'd say he did a fairly good job, yes. He even got the slight accent that Liam Neeson's got in there. Okay, that's good. I, I think... It, in... it was really weird, though, when he gave Mace Windu a southern accent.
0: That was kind of weird. Interesting. Gets... A... <laughs> I don't know if I want to find out what that sounds like, uh, <laughs> 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 though part of me does, part of me does. So that'll be something I have to, to struggle with. I think in my head canon, I will keep Liam Neeson's voice as Qui-Gon for me, uh, <laughs> but- I mean, how could you not?
1: That's the voice of Schindler, that's the voice of Aslan. Yeah. How, Liam Neeson just voices everything amazing.
0: Exactly. Everything he touches turns to gold. I do also want to mention that your Rogue Squadron- uh, you said that you had lost the patch, that it had fallen off. They announced le- yesterday evening that they're making a Rogue Squadron movie, I think. So that'll, that'll be coming out in, I think, 2023. So you have every reason to be quite happy.
1: <laughs> so long as they have Wedge in it. There is no Rogue Squadron without Wedge Antilles.
0: Oh, I would have to guarantee he would be in it. I don't know if they would <laughs> use the same actor, but I think Wedge as a character would have to be in it. <laughs>
1: um, the only man to survive both Death Star runs.
0: Exactly. I think a lot of people forget how badass he he really is for such
1: little screen time as he gets in the movies he is the absolute best pilot they have and just so freaking cool
0: i would argue maybe even a better pilot than luke
1: i don't know uh yeah he does
0: it all without the benefit of the force exactly luke is cheating a bit (laughs) not wedge a little bit (laughs) we've got some good chapters ahead of us to discuss 11 through 13 there's a lot there our two different pairs end up intersecting as well so how about i read my summary for chapter 11 and then we can dive right in
1: i'll stop distracting you and let's actually get to the content (laughs) i've been looking forward to this
0: (laughs) qui-gon obi-wan and rail take a shuttle down to pijal's royal complex by the seaside Princess Fannery greets them at the palace, and Qui-Gon instantly notices how Rael's teachings have caught on with her. The princess takes the guests to the throne room, where she introduces them to Captain Darren and Minister Orth. They begin to talk about the current situation involving the opposition on Pijal and the moon. The Jedi learn that the court is now concerned about Fanri's safety, especially with the traditional Great Hunt taking place soon, that could expose her to harm but is vital to proving her legitimacy to the people. Once in their guest suite, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan discuss the events in the throne room and plot their next move to finding the opposition. Qui-Gon informs his Padawan that they will travel to the moon in the morning to investigate. This is kind of the, the chapter where, in the previous chapters, they had been above Pijao, not quite on the planet, dealing with the plasma fire, but now we see them finally properly appear on the scene. They come down to the rail in the shuttle, they get introduced to the princess, and there is a, a very you know, interesting conversation that proceeds in the throne room, really expanding on the concerns of the current situation on Pijal. Before we get into all of that, do you have any general thoughts on Chapter 11 before we really dive into it?
1: I thought it was interesting. this is where you get your first actual description of Pajal, mm. you know during the uh, the fly over it and yeah you, know, you get like the castle that is built inside the mountain which is the <laughs> one thing that can take obi-wan's attention away from flying right
0: <laughs> Which I love the plugs here and there, how Claudia keeps touching on the fact that he really loves flying, uh, which, you know, we're still yet to find out what changed for him there. Um, so I love the little <laughs> bits here and there about, uh, you know, still reminding us that that's a thing. But you're right about Pijal. You know, I feel like it is slightly underrated as far as people's planet conversations that happen where, you know, we hear a lot about the beauty of Naboo, of Alderaan, of other planets that I can... <laughs> that Coruscant. I can, Coruscant, yeah, in, in its own way. It's urban beauty. Let's talk about Pijal because you had mentioned there that the palace is built into the mountainside. Like they kind of maybe like hollowed out the mountain and built the castle and the royal complex into it. Um, Where, you know, Obi-Wan, he's looking at the scanners and he's saying to Qui-Gon, you know, I don't see anything, though the scanners say that we're pretty much right over the complex. And Qui-Gon points it out to him that it's built into the cliffs, that the palace grounds and the gardens are hidden beneath these thick forests, that the palace built into the mountain is on the seaside. It's really this beautiful scene. And we get this quote, Pijal culture believes in focusing on the internal rather than the external. And I like that a lot, where unless you're looking for the beauty, just like Obi-Wan, we wouldn't even notice it. I think Pijal could be severely underrated.
1: Well, there's a quote that I'd written down. It was, uh, There was something fascinating Obi-Wan decided about the idea of having such grandeur and concealing it, making it known only to those who would be willing to discover what lay within. Exactly. And it's like all, all the, the different decorations that they note, you know, the decorating the underside of the table, decorating the seat cushions so it's concealed when someone sits on it, very simple lanterns on the outside that have reflective tiles inside... Mm-hmm.
0: It seemed like a very unique place. You know, we kind of would get the impression from rail you know, when he's talking about, you know, Pajal's like the best place in the galaxy. You know, we're really hyped up about it. And when we get there, it's this hidden beauty. You're saying if we're not really looking for it, if we're not like, you know, feeling under the chair, we won't really notice that. <laughs> it's really, there's a lot of grandeur there that might escape the first glance. And, you know, I just love how Claudia is creating this very unique Place And I was very blown away by that. I like the purpose that it serves. You know, they're coming from Coruscant and you know, a very outwardly pomp place to Pijal where it's like you could be looking at cliffs and not notice anything. But you know, when you take a closer look, there's actually the royal complex right there.
1: Um, so I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, the cynic that is me, (laughs) is saying like, okay, they put the fanciest stuff in the hardest places to see. That's giving me the impression that they have something to hide.
0: That is a good point. And I feel like, especially once we get to the scene where they're talking in the throne room it kind of felt like a whodunit you know we're getting introduced to all these different people and we're trying Mm -hmm. to find out uh, more about the opposition and it kind of felt like all right there's something that is uh, yet to be seen and noticed here and that's a really great point where you do have to wonder are they hiding something just like the nature of their culture the nature of how they treat beauty and wealth where it's hidden like that that's a very that's a very uh, keen point i like that a lot i do like when they arrive to the palace and they get introduced to princess fannery and the honor guard with her I love Fanry's greeting here. I'm just going to read this quote. She says, quote, "We are most honored to welcome more Jedi Knights to our realm." fanry said coolly and properly. Then made a face. I'm supposed to refer to myself in the plural when I'm speaking officially. No idea why. Makes me want to turn around and look for my clone. <laughs> 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 and I love that breaking of the ice there, where she starts out, you know, very regally, very calmly, and then she reminds us all, she reminds them, and and the readers as well, that she is a child physically and also at heart. And I love. Of that little lighthearted moment there.
1: Yeah, I love how they made Fanry so quick-witted and clever girl there. <laughs> Just so good at putting people at ease you just see her and it's like oh aren't you adorable
0: (laughs) but she also is is a very competent ruler you know in the previous chapter i talked about it last episode when she was watching the events of the plasma fire unfold she was telling herself that she can't look away because that's her people up there in danger her people could die up there she doesn't deserve to look away so we know that she has compassion and empathy for her people and then we also have these moments here where she is able to put up a a royal front, but she also can easily fall back on kind of like that lighthearted, good-natured personality when she wants to and when she chooses to. Of course, then I gotta
1: wonder, when is the politician's side going to come out?
0: Yeah, that that is a fair question. We do kind of see in her conversation with Minister Orth in one of the following chapters how she's able to also think like a future queen as well. We'll get more into that. I do like, you know, and I think you noted that she does come off as like a very clever girl, and that's exactly what Qui-Gon thinks where he notices that she's quick-witted, she's independent, and exactly the kind of student or person affiliated with Rail that he'd expect. But that also reminds him of Nim Piana. And he notes very darkly to end this scene, you know, in his thoughts, he doesn't say this out loud, that Fannery is very close to the age that Nim was when she died. And it was like, Clygon, why you gotta <laughs> ruin our mood like that? You know, we have this very light-hearted scene, and then he's thinking to himself very similar to nim and not in not in a great way <laughs>
1: I uh, noted down here, you know, despite how Qui-Gon and Rael are such old friends, Qui-Gon can't help but, you know, be a little bitter towards Rael and, like, subtly trying to take him down a peg or two, saying, you know, oh, of course you like this place best. This has been your home. It's only natural. You should become fond of it.
0: Exactly. That is a quote that I've written down, too, And kind of like this next scene when they're walking to the throne room and, like you're saying, Rael is talking very pridefully about Pijal. He's, you know, he's very, and rightfully so proud of the planet that he's called home for the past number of years, but you're right, how Qui-Gon kind of tries to take him down a peg or two there, and, you know, I wonder, because Obi-Wan is noticing, too, that it isn't like Qui-Gon to say things like that, you know, he didn't say that he didn't like Pajal, but he's also trying to take Rail's pride down a few notches, and I wonder, you know, we've seen Young-Gon make some appearances, I wonder, is this the beginning of passive aggressive And
1: now that he's with Rail? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I could see that in my head i referred to him as patagon
0: patagon (laughs) patagonia
1: (laughs) i like that but yeah and in the flashbacks he's always so deferential to him and now they're meeting more as equals and he sees him and he's just like Yeah, I know you messed up. I know you got away with it. I'm just going to, you know, subtly kind of take the steam out of you. Exactly, which
0: which is there's a lot of steam to take out of rail. You know, we're seeing how you know, how proud he is of his role of his home. And so it'll be very interesting to see how that develops. I do feel kind of bad for him because Obi-Wan is is thinking, you know, he's noticing that Qui-Gon is doing this and he's thinking, quote, I suppose I should be glad Qui-Gon's not overly impressed with a master who was responsible for killing his Padawan. I do feel kind of bad for Rail because he is totally oblivious to the fact that Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan to a lesser extent are holding this against him. You know, he still thinks, His relationship with Qui-Gon is fine. You know, he has noticed that something is off. But I do feel bad they're coming in with these reservations, with these preconceptions, without really giving the rail of the present day that much of a chance. What did you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I
1: felt bad for rail. I mean, he had to go through something so difficult, Mm. you know, thinking like, okay, I'm calling in my old friend here, you know, one of my best buddies. He's going to help me on this. He's going to support me not realizing that, you know, his old friend, and not only his old friend, but then this Padawan secretly have this thing against him.
0: Exactly, and, and it, it kind of hurts, but we also, you know, in the previous chapters, we notice from Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan's point of view is that he is becoming very comfortable, or he has become comfortable with the power of his post, and we did see the unfortunate scene aboard the Leverage in the observation deck where and he's very complicit with the Zerka Corporation, who have a big influence on Pijal using slaves. Mm. We feel bad for Rail, but we also have to temper that and realize that Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan might have a point.
1: Yes. And then I noted how Rail in his relationship with Fanry, he is not too subtly trying to make up for his past failure. But he still sees himself as being like a father figure mm. to her, so he puts himself above her. Yeah,
0: in a way, you know, I think he knows that he is second in command to her. You know, she is still, although he's Lord Regent, she is still to be the queen. Exactly. And I like that point. I hadn't thought about that. How he's trying to make up for his mistake with Nim in his relationship with Fanry. You know, I had noticed, and it's not hard to notice, that he takes that protective, care-filled role and relationship with her. But I hadn't thought about that, that maybe he might be trying to atone for his past mistakes and making sure that nothing happens to Fannery while he still has anything to say about it. And it seems like once we're in the throne room, that there might be some danger involving Fannery in the future upcoming. We do get introduced to Minister Orth, to Captain Darren, and they bring up the Great Hunt that is coming up, and this is a very important tradition to Pijao, where it kind of shows that this is a hunt Fannery will take part in, a very central role. And it quotes, Rail says quote, "It's like the ruler has to demonstrate they can provide for the planet." And Captain Darren follows up that you know if she does not participate. In that it kind of makes the whole coronation null and void, which is very interesting. It seems like a very interesting tradition. I do like when they bring up that this could be a situation that could put Fannery in danger. Obi-Wan says, quote, "'Perhaps the hunt might be postponed,' Obi-Wan ventured. "'Every Pijali citizen in the room stared at him "'as though he'd just stripped off his trousers.'" (laughs) So we we gather instantly... You know, first of all, I I do feel bad for Obi-Wan. The first thing that he says in the throne room, it is that embarrassing of a statement. And we gather from that the gravity of this tradition, of this event. It's very curious.
1: Yeah, it seems like canceling the hunt to them would be like trying to cancel World Cup soccer. There would just be riots. (laughs) Exactly,
0: exactly. Exactly. And that is a hunt that uh, this event is coming up in the near future. So we'll have to, we'll have that to deal with uh, eventually, I can only suspect. I do want to ask you about Rail's relationship, if you could even call that, with Minister Orth, where Obi-Wan is gathering very quickly, because this is in his point of view, that she clearly has resentment for Rail in the way that she speaks to and with him. You know, it's a lot of aggressive and passive aggressive remarks. What did you think about Claudia showing us that there? There is a lot of tension between these two. It's not a really great look for Minister Orth, who's, you know, snapping at Rail, who's making these aggressive remarks. In the It game, it seems like we're not really liking Minister Orth.
1: You know, I've written down about the whole thing between Rail and Minister Orth, and my note was, would you two just get it over with and bang already? <laughs> that would be a twist. That would be... Well, Obi-Wan thinks about how you can never tell what people are holding on the inside and their contempt for each other is a way of hiding their true feelings.
0: Oh my gosh, I need that fanfic. You know, it might be kind of like the classic <laughs> middle school thing where it's like to show you like each other, you're outwardly mean to each other, but inside you're like, you have feelings. <laughs> oh my, how did I miss that? <laughs> <laughs> this is why I have you here <laughs> to point out these things I'm missing. Uh, (laughs) Helps to have a twisted sense of humor. (laughs) Uh, I do want to also bring up that Qui-Gon notices, and you had talked about this not too long ago, how Rail places himself on Fannery's level, if not maybe even slightly above Fannery, where Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are noticing that he does take a place to Fannery's right, slightly behind her, but he's still at the center of attention with her. Obi-Wan's wondering, quote, No Jedi should ever fall into that trap. He doesn't seem as though he cares for authority that much, but he definitely likes the fact that no one can boss him around. This is something we had gathered some hints about when he was commanding slaves around in the observation deck of the Leverage, and we're seeing here how he's very comfortable with the power he has. Do you think Obi-Wan has a point here? Oh, definitely.
1: Rail is definitely happy to enjoy the perks that come with being the Queen's Regent, no one being able to tell him what to do, and then he can just throw his position in people's faces like he did back in the cantina. Yeah. With the uh, <laughs> the guy who was going after the uh, the cantina lady. Yeah. And just like, oh, by the way, I'm the Queen's regent.
0: Exactly. You know, he he does not make it a secret. If you didn't know who he was and you're looking at him, he does not dress like the role. One of the first things Obi-Wan noticed and the first thing Yungan noticed when he first met Rail was that he kind of dresses in rags. It's kind of like an unkempt look. But when it comes to the point where he can flex his power and even in the slightest way, he does. And it's very interesting to see how that will continue to evolve.
1: He seems to enjoy shocking people with his power. You know, I, I dress like a hobo, but then turns out, hey, I work for the queen. <laughs> it's the perfect
0: undercover role where it's like, actually, you're talking to the Lord Regent of this planet.
1: <laughs> and you just see people like, what? <laughs>
0: Uh, In kind of like the final scene of this chapter, we're in the guest suite. We get a, a brief description of the Jedi's quarters, and I just want to read it here. I'm just so impressed with the serenity of Pijal, where their suite is, quote, It was an ample space with bedrooms for each of them and a central room with tall windows that looked out onto the sea. We know that Qui-Gon is a big fan of peace when he spent time in the Temple Gardens. He liked the serenity and the peace of it. I love every little bit that we're getting about Pijal in the palace and the beauty there. And even in, in the small description of their quarters, it just it's very vivid for me to imagine the scene, especially when it's like looking out onto the sea. It seems like the perfect place to be. Though when it comes down to it, not everything is great between them. Where Qui-Gon is being very cryptic towards Obi-Wan when they're discussing the Throne the Room events, where Qui-Gon does say that even though Captain Darren, for example, seemed very devoted to Fannery, he isn't entirely certain of him, but he won't tell Obi-Wan whether he's certain of Rail at this point. And I just have a, a quote here when Obi-Wan is getting a little fed up at how cryptic and speaking in a riddles almost that Qui-Gon is being. He's thinking to himself, quote, his master was being cryptic again. By now, Obi-Wan ought to have been used to it. He had been used to it, but the abrupt, unannounced end to his apprenticeship had scoured his feelings raw. He wanted to snap. Just tell me what you're thinking. Can't you for once just... How shall we begin, Obi-Wan said as coolly as he could manage. We're seeing he is still salty towards Qui-Gon, and he has every right to be, but we also see how he kind of bottles up the feelings that they're about to pour over there in his thoughts, you know, where he was ready to snap at Qui-Gon. He is trying. There's progress being made. We see that he's still angry, but we have to give credit, even a small bit, to Obi-Wan. He is trying to make things, at least outwardly,
1: better. Well, something I thought about with the relationship between them and all the stress on their relationship is this is so much like a sitcom plot in that things would be so much better if they would just talk it out (laughs) instead of, I'm just going to hide everything. You know, this wouldn't have come up if Qui-Gon hadn't hidden the whole council thing. If he had just talked to Obi-Wan, things would have gotten so much easier for them
0: exactly you know but that doesn't <laughs> that makes the story less interesting if there was that easy <laughs> Uh, but you—we right, do have. Right, then to there's wish. no plot. Exactly, right. <laughs> we do, we do wish what it could be. We see what it could be, but the reality of it is still kind of tough to read at times. Though they are both feeling some anticipation for their next move, where they are planning to go to the moon the next morning. As we close out chapter eleven, do you have any last thoughts on this chapter before we move on?
1: Uh, let's see. I made a note here about Captain Darren. Mm. You know, he just he sounds so cool and impressive, tall, dark, and with an impressive voice. Mm. In my mind, as I was listening to it, I could picture him being played by Lance Reddick. Okay. Which, yeah, <laughs> the hotel manager from John Wick.
0: That would be, wow, <laughs> we should just do uh, some casting ideas. That's, that's... <laughs> <laughs> he did kind of remind me, you know, there's a lot of, I know there's a lot of like parallels here between this story and the Phantom Menace. He did kind of remind me of Captain Panaka, you know, the very loyal captain of the guard yeah. to uh, to the princess, to the queen. Um, and, you know, we're seeing some parallels from Fanry to Padme and, and now also with Darren and, and Panaka, I, I thought. But it is interesting how Qui-Gon is not entirely sold on whether to trust him or not. He does say kind of like the most devoted people sometimes you have to worry
1: about the most so we'll see <laughs> we will see <laughs> and then uh, the other thing i thought was interesting is how star wars seems to be bringing little bits of legends back into canon slowly mm. With Zerka, they were introduced in Knights of the Old Republic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or actually, originally in the Star Wars role playing game and then Knights mm-hmm. of the Old Republic. But Kotor was originally deemed legends, non canon, and now they're slowly bringing bits of that bits and pieces back into the canon. Like they also mention the cellcath who were an alien race that were created for Knights of the Old Republic mm-hmm. and are now officially canon since they were mentioned in this book.
0: No, I didn't know that part. I, I i had noticed that i I had seen the Zerka corporation name before in kotor but i didn't know that last bit that is interesting to see how they're bringing bits and pieces back like you're saying that is that is really cool that's a really cool note (laughs) makes Um, me wonder what else
1: they're going to bring in from exactly they've
0: already brought thrawn back from legends so uh, we'll see how they continue to how they continue to move from there i'll give my chapter summary for chapter 12 and then we can discuss that while traveling to pijal's moon Obi-Wan realizes that Qui-Gon isn't there to look for the opposition, but to find the mysterious shuttle that helped them during the plasma fire. On the moon's surface, they track the shuttle's signal to a hidden cave. The two Jedi enter the cave and surprise the two pilots who identify themselves as Pax and Rahara. Although Pax is wary of the Jedi, Rahara strikes up conversation with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, revealing why they helped them save the Soulcraft. She also tells them the gemstones she and Pax had discovered there were misleading, as they looked like kyber crystals but were not actually kyber. This prompts Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan to recall a very familiar prophecy they had discussed only recently. Much to Pax's annoyance, the two thieves eventually agree to help the Jedi track down the opposition. This is kind of a moment that we've been waiting for in this chapter, how these two pairs eventually meet. You know, we kind of suspected it would happen at some point, especially with Pax and Rahara trying to steal a resource very valuable to the Jedi. It was fun to see their initial
1: reactions.
0: Do you have any general thoughts on chapter 12 before we get right into it?
1: I was really glad they did not just have the two storylines be like, you know, two ships passing in the night. They're only tangentially interacting with each other. No, you have these groups actually coming together. The plot lines can converging and you get to see the interesting reactions between them
0: yeah we kind of found some similarities between the personalities of each of them Um, and it's just very interesting to see the dynamic actually play out on paper so I'm very keen to get into that so they do take the shuttle down to the moon's surface and I just have a brief point before we get to their landing and what happens there where Qui-Gon requested a very simple not very flashy shuttle he was presented with options of very big royal aircraft that were very wealthy looking and Very fancy-looking ships, but he chose to pick a simpler, smaller shuttle. And he rejected the larger, fancier options because he wanted to kind of save his favors for later, and he thinks to himself, quote, Better to keep them in reserve. It was too early to test Rail's hospitality. Not Rail, Qui-Gon told himself, as Obi-Wan brought the cruiser out of Pijal's atmosphere. The Lord Regent. That's who Rail Avaros is here. And I wondered to myself, and I wonder to you, is this Qui-Gon actually trying to correct him? himself? Or do you think, is this him trying to create some separation between himself and Rail to kind of try to separate himself from the friend he once knew, especially given his recent thoughts about him? What did you make of that?
1: I think it's Qui-Gon knowing that he is here to do a job, mm-hmm. and yes he was brought in by an old friend, but he's like, okay, I can't let friendship get in the way of the job that I'm supposed to be doing here.
0: That's a good point, yeah, especially when he's seeing the similarities between Nimpiana and Fannery, maybe he would be kind of wary about Rail's relationship with her and maybe kind of even have a protective view towards Fannery as well, especially given the context of how Rail's last apprentice, last youngling under his protection ended up. It's very interesting. Yeah, but you're right. He is there on a job. He might just be trying to treat this as business to not let those emotions and feelings cloud his judgment more than they already have, I suppose suppose. And so Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are able to track Paxton Rahara's shuttle uh, signal to this cave. And he's telling Obi-Wan that he's seeking their help. For one thing, they know that they're not the opposition. They helped them in that moment. You know, Otherwise, they wouldn't have aided them if they were the opposition. And secondly, they're noting that their shuttle scanners are picking up the scanner blocking field that we know to be on board the Merix. So Qui-Gon knows that whoever's on board is very smart and skilled to create that powerful device so we're kind of seeing why Qui-Gon wants to seek them out but let's get to when they actually encounter. You know, they're making their way through this cave. They're hearing, overhearing the conversation between who we know to be Pax and Rahara. And Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan jump out from the shadows at them. You know, once Rahara's like hears their footsteps, kind of very astutely, Obi-Wan's noticing, and they jump out of the shadows, igniting their lightsabers. And then Qui-Gon begins with, "quote We mean you no harm." And I'm like, bro, imagine if two Jedi just jump out at you with ignited sabers. They might not be He's so willing to take
1: your word there. Well, and as annoying as Pax can seem, I gotta give the dude props for his hoots. <laughs> spine this moment, two Jedi come out with their lightsabers out, and he's trying to bluff them down.
0: <laughs> what is he? He's holding like a, a shovel. A shovel. <laughs> he's standing in their way with a shovel ready to. <laughs>
1: and going back to uh you drawing parallels between Pax and uh and Obi-Wan there. I could picture Obi Wan trying to bluff someone like that, also.
0: Yeah, especially maybe uh, older Obi Wan, maybe.
1: <laughs> yeah, like Clone Wars era Obi Wan. Yeah. I could picture him making a bluff like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think he would. He have like tea with General Grievous. I think he might be willing <laughs> to do a lot. <laughs> uh, and I thought, I kind of thought to myself, you know, brave but foolish. Um, you know, and and Pax hasn't really been a very likable character up till now, but that was a very comical moment where you know he stands. Standing in the way of two uh, Jedi with ignited lightsabers with a shovel ready to ready to duke
1: it out. You know, they kind of duel the fates round two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we learned that uh, Pax was raised by 3PO units. Mm. And so I got to wonder, when would a protocol droid have taught Pax how to bluff?
0: Where would he have picked that up? You know, because maybe... You know, we we've kind of uh, seen the human side, uh, the human nature of Pax kind of poke through at times, and maybe that's kind of like a spontaneous thing where it's like that's the Pax that we've been trying to find, and he shows himself there in that moment. You know, that is a good point. You know, it was that part of the lessons from the three PO unions. <laughs> Pax and Rahara do have very different reactions to the current situation where Pax is wary of them and he's also frustrated you know because they just jumped in on their mining operation albeit fruitless given the fakes that we'll come to discuss where you know Rahara on the other hand quote had introduced herself and was now chatting with these two like they were old friends and this is in Pax's point of view so he's looking on and he's very irritated at this and Rahara is showing Qui-Gon these crystals that she and Pax have had found and they're called colon crystals and Qui-Gon is noticing that they possess the same kind of weight and even similar vibrations with the force as kyber crystals and that anyone could have been fooled by them but they're not kyber and when I read this I was like hang on we've heard this before fake kyber with the prophecy quote mm-hmm. when the kyber that is not kyber shines forth the time of prophecy will be at hand it's kind of a chilling moment when we make that connection right there
1: Yeah, I got to that point in the book and I immediately had to go online and look up the timeline and be like, okay, yeah, this would be happening like – right around the time when Anakin was born. Mm.
0: I haven't looked at the timeline myself, actually. I I do wonder, because it could be that. It could be something else entirely. Like, we don't know. And that's the thing with these prophecies. Like, it very well could mean that, yeah, that Chosen One prophecy, kind of like these prophecies linking, that could be happening, or it will be happening very soon. It just leaves us wondering what exactly this means. And Qui-Gon will wonder the same thing when it dawns on him. I want to get your thoughts on one of my highlights Highlights from Pax's point of view, especially in his thoughts regarding the Jedi, particularly Obi-Wan, where there's a couple of ways that he's kind of thinking towards Obi-Wan. The first one is, quote, the young one with a stupid haircut, whatever his name was. And the other one is, uh, he, he also later refers to him as, quote, the little one with the bad hair, Obby, whatever. <laughs> and like Those small moments where it's like, <laughs> first of all, he might have a point about Obi-Wan's haircut, but then also the, when he referred to him as Obby, whatever, I just, that was so good.
1: Yeah, this was something I'd taken note of. Obi-Wan's a Padawan right now, so he's going to have the little hair tail thing. And that was something from when Attack of the Clones came out, is that so many of the people I knew had a problem with Anakin being all emotional and everything. They're like, dude, we can't take you seriously with that stupid rat tail. (laughs) And now Pax is thinking the same thing. It's like,
0: bro, just get a good haircut. I think Pax has like spiky hair. I think they describe him as
1: like wiry hair. Oh, wiry
0: hair. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. So he might have maybe a little better of a haircut than (laughs) Abby.
1: I just love that little
0: mispronunciation.
1: Another note I made is uh, Pax is so hostile towards Obi-Wan. I wonder if it's because like, on a subconscious level he is picking up what we've been saying. Mm-hmm. How the two of them are very similar and he doesn't like thinking of someone being similar to him because this whole scene is from his point of view yeah. and he never actually says Obi-Wan's name right. He never refers to him by name. He says the Jedi Knight and his student. Uh, he never James Qui-Gon, the tall fellow called Qui-Gon, Then as you said, the stupid one, or the <laughs> young one with the stupid haircut, whatever his name was, little one with bad hair, Obi whatever, or Obbi bad hair. Obby bad hair. I'll be bad. <laughs> never actually says his name, Obi-Wan.
0: That is a very good point where it could be with a purpose. You know, maybe he feels a little threatened. He views himself as very unique of a person, you know, with his upbringing, with his skills as a pilot, as a gemstone thief. And maybe he feels a little particular tension between himself and Obi-Wan. that is a very interesting point that maybe he's doing that on purpose because he does note qui-gon's name but it's obi-wan that he's kind of singling out here and yeah that is a fair point we wonder if that's for a deeper purpose there i want to get to this next point in their conversation where qui-gon and obi-wan are asking why pax and rahara intervened you know why they helped them with the plasma fire but then also why did they fly away And Rahara, giving her reason why she felt the need to intervene was that she held out her hand and we see a scar, specifically from a Zerka tag that she had long since removed. And we had found out in the previous chapter that the Zerka Corporation inserts these scanning tags in their slaves' hands between the skin and the muscle to be able to scan them as property. And we see here that Rahara had been a slave to the Zerka Corporation, though she freed herself. I just want to read this quote here, though, where she's talking about what they're witnessing. She says, quote, The scars won't heal, she said quietly. They treat the tags with a chemical that burns in ways Bacta can't fix. So you have to wear it forever, the proof that you're enslaved or were before you were freed. Before we get to when she talks about how she freed herself, even reading that bit right there, it just makes your blood boil. It's really hard to read. It just, I, I kind of just have no words. Well, unfortunately, I'd kind of
1: spoiled the reveal for myself a little mm. bit. I'd already had my suspicion that she'd been a slave when I heard the name Zerka, and you know, I was like, okay, Zerka, where have I heard that before? Do a little research, finding out that one of the things they do is they deal in slave labor, and. And then earlier on, when you see Rahara's reaction to exactly. Zerka ships, it's like, oh, she was a slave. That is so bad.
0: Exactly. Because we did see her very visceral, terrified reaction when they saw that the Zerka Corporation is in this system in a very prominent presence. And just the way that they treat them purposely with chemicals that will never allow the scars to heal I hated reading that. But then she kind of takes back the moment where she tells them, because Qui-Gon asks, your last owner freed you? And we see that Rahara's expression grew steely. I freed myself. And to that, I can only say, like, hell yeah. (laughs) Like, massive, massive props to Rahara where she took it upon herself and she freed herself. And I like how she kind of took back that moment. It kind of lifted the spirits up just a little bit after the reveal there.
1: Oh yeah, and then when you get to later on in the book and you see how it was she freed herself, Rahara is just so awesome. (laughs)
0: <laughs> she really is, you know, and uh, I, I am looking forward to discussing that, you know, when we get there, uh, down the line in the book, but we've had testaments to the quality of her character where she was telling Pax in a previous chapter, you know, when she saw those people in need on the Soulcraft, she had read the Manifest, there were slaves on board, when she saw them in need, she knew that she had to intervene, and that was the only thing she would have done in that situation, and, and we just have to love Rahara, especially with this yeah. island.
1: <laughs> And I loved her reaction when Qui-Gon was asking, why did you help? And her reaction was basically, there was no reason not to help.
0: Exactly. It really speaks to the quality of her character. And Pax also has kind of a redeeming moment here, too, where he steps in between Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, and Rahara, where he's saying that they'll have to go through him if they're even thinking about returning her to Zerka. I was wondering, is that out of duty to his crewmate or because of his feelings? Because we know he does have or he has had feelings for her. And I might go with a little bit of the latter here where this might be a very human moment from Pax where you know, he's intervening and he's being very protective of her. And it, it was very nice to see.
1: Yeah, I usually have no patience for bravado, but it's like, okay... <laughs> That's another thing a protocol droid wouldn't teach you is how to stand in front of two Jedi and be like, hey, you are not taking my friend back to slavery
0: exactly and because every calculation that he might do in that moment would show him the odds are very much against him but he does it anyway to let them know no chance and Qui-Gon does assure him a couple of times even if Rahara and Pax choose not to help them he's not there to return her to slavery and that's exactly what we'd expect from Qui-Gon but it was still good to see that kind of assurance from him and the chapter ends where they're talking about what kind of help Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan need and Qui-Gon ends the chapter with this quote I need you to help me find some terrorists and that's a very kind of like okay like here we go <laughs> very uh, epic almost way to end the chapter there
1: just one of those mic drop sort of moments like let's
0: get some terrorists <laughs> yep. uh, it was a very uh, fun read at times to see how they initially interacted especially from pax's point of view do you have any closing thoughts on chapter 12 before we move on to 13
1: uh, let's see. One of the things I'd noted was Pax, of course, being super jealous of watching Rahara interacting with uh, with Qui Gon and being like, "Well, you know, doesn't she know that Jedi are supposedly celibate?" <laughs> like, oh, you know that that's not technically true. You know, we you know, love is forbidden. Strong connection. Nothing in the Jedi Code says no emotionless, meaningless sex. <laughs> I mean, we don't
0: know what happened between Obi Wan and Satine, so I'm leaving everything on the table.
1: <laughs> I mean, Kiari Mundi. I think this might be Legends. I don't know if it's. I think it's canon, canon yeah. stuff. How he had five wives and seven daughters? I think it was he like... He didn't care about any of them,
0: but yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that's like a cultural thing to his species where it's like he was one of the exceptions in the order. Like, they allowed him to do... I think it's canon. And uh, listeners, if you know if that's still canon or if it's now kind of uh, legends, please let us know. That is a good point. So we know that it can and does happen. Very, I don't want to think about Qui-Gon going in with other kind of uh, <laughs> other kind of motives. <laughs>
1: I'm still shit. I I don't think that's Qui-Gon's deal right now, although they do mention things along this line for Qui-Gon later in the book, Mm. but I I just always thought like, so if the force is passed along through usually through family lines and everything, but Jedi aren't allowed to have family does that mean there's just like a lot of Jedi one night stands going on?
0: I want to know what happens when they go out to party, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> the nightlife of the Jedi. It sounds like it could be like a a book or a movie or something. <laughs> Star Wars. Maybe right? that's why they
1: put the Jedi Temple on Coruscant. Because Coruscant's got to have a killer nightlife. I mean,
0: there's every chance that it does. <laughs> like, it has to be guaranteed. Like, you know, it is the most influential place. They've got to have the best clubs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the nightlife. The club scene on Coruscant is killer. <laughs> I, you know, I see a lot of movie rankings out there. I want to see, like, Planet Nightlife rankings. I think Horuson might be towards the top. <laughs> Though maybe Pajal has, you know, we've seen a Rail. We've found out that he has had, like, flings with the bartender at the pub that he went to after winning the race. So I'd be very curious. Yeah, and so that kind of wraps up Chapter 12, unless there's anything else you had to say uh, before we move on? Uh,
1: nope, I think that's everything I've got for that. All
0: right, well, then I will give my summary for Chapter 13, and then we can move on from there. Let's do it. After further discussion in the Merrics, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan strike a deal with Pax and Rahara, with the two pilots agreeing for them to use their ship to fly around the moon looking for the opposition. After Pax leaves to take care of some business, Qui-Gon inquires about him to Rahara, who tells the two Jedi about Pax's tragic and peculiar upbringing. Meanwhile, aboard a Zerka yacht for a private party, Princess Fannery and Sector Supervisor Cole talk about Fannery's future coronation and authority. Obi-Wan raises concerns to his master about making an agreement with thieves, and Qui-Gon defends his choice to his Padawan. Although Qui-Gon notices his apprentice catching on to some of his teachings, he also notes just how far apart they have fallen. A very short chapter, you know, most of it is still the discussion that's going on between Pax and Rahara and the two Jedi. Do you have any general thoughts on 13?
1: General thoughts, no. A lot of specific notes, but...
0: <laughs> well, maybe we can get to that as we as we move through. The chapter opens up with the four of them on the Merricks, and they're talking about the namesake, of why they named it as they did, and we find out that Merricks, it's pretty cool, it has a pretty cool backstory, that it's a gemstone, and it's actually the fossilized amber of uh, white, I, th- I don't know how to pronounce it, uh... Rocher, Rocher trees? Rocher trees, I think. Maybe that's it. Uh, listeners, if you know what trees of Kashik the Rocher trees are, how to pronounce that, please let me know. But they're actually the fossilized amber of the white Rocher trees of Kashyyyk, which have been extinct, which I thought was pretty cool, but Obi-Wan asks them in kind of like a petulant teenage way, you know, why did you name your ship after a stone you've never actually found? And <laughs> I just have this answer that Rahara gives. She says, quote, it's about hope. Pax gave her a look. That wasn't the answer he would have given Qui-Gon saw, but he didn't contradict her either. The man has a soul, Qui-Gon thought, but he makes her carry it. I kind of got chills reading that again. I got chills when I first read that. We're seeing Qui-Gon's perception of their dynamic, that he has a soul, but he makes Rohara carry it. What were your thoughts about that?
1: there was an interview with Claudia Gray on StarWars.com where she says Pax and Rahara are kind of like Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Mm. Pax is brilliant, but he's a little bit off, you know, doesn't quite get the social graces, and he's got his constant companion who is the one who knows how to handle people Mm. and even with Sherlock he's brilliant, and you see these weird moments of humanity in him Mm. you know, you see interesting moments of Humanity impacts, like he's got the soul of an artist. He gives his ship a name about hope. Mm.
0: Because we have to think that, you know, because it is his ship, so you're right. He was the one who named it. Rahara is the one who speaks for him there, and I I like that connection. I hadn't actually heard about that point from Claudia. It's like you're saying, every now and then we saw a couple of instances in the previous chapter where we see these glimpses of the humanity in Pax trying to break through, and maybe we could have expected him in this moment to step in and correct her, like saying, no, actually, you know, this is why I named it, but we don't. And we see him let Rahara say that and let that point stand where she is speaking on their behalf but it's exactly right. Rahara has got it spot on and we're seeing you know, maybe the underlying motivations of Pax. And I think it's very fascinating and it is a very difficult burden for Rahara to bear and we've seen the tension in their relationship in the previous chapters not everything is always great between Pax and Rahara but in moments like these we kind of see how their partnership best manifests itself where pax might not be as outwardly outspoken about these kind of human sides to him but rahara knows this and she's able to speak on his behalf like that it's a very powerful moment i really love that
1: i really love that i should clarify i misspoke a little bit it's sherlock and watson specifically from the show elementary oh i haven't watched that one (laughs) where you got the no-nonsense female watson that's rahara
0: Okay, interesting. I guess I, I I do have to go go and watch that one. though I think the point could still stand? Where you know I think yeah. in the BBC Sherlock, you know Sherlock is very <laughs> not very socially adept, and so Watson might have to step in at times to speak for him there. But so I guess it could work in kind of like the flip. I think the point can still stand at the fundamental level of it, but it's still a very fascinating point as as it is. And Qui Gon kind of steps in to tack on to O'Hara's answer here. He says, "Quote: Their ship is named after." their ultimate goal, he said to Obi-Wan. It's an aspiration, a reminder to strive for great things, something any Padawan should relate to, surely. And this is where we kind of have to take a step back and shake our heads at just how far apart Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan have grown in these past number of days, where he didn't mean that as an insult or a jab to Obi-Wan, but he can see that Obi-Wan took it as that. You know, he kind of draws away, becomes more subdued in that moment, and Qui-Gon notices that he took that as an insult insult, and he's thinking to himself, quote, even the innocent remarks about having goals to aim for seem to have stung. Qui-Gon wondered how things could have gotten so bad so quickly. The probable answer, they'd been that bad for a while, but he'd failed to see it. He'd been so busy judging Obi-Wan that he hadn't thoroughly judged himself. And he's probably right here. It's a very... Yeah, I like that
1: you uh, gotten that quote, because I wrote it down also, mm-hmm. and, you know, it goes to Qui-Gon's self-sacrificing nature... He always blames himself for everything, and uh, this was another thing from that interview with Claudia Gray where she says she wrote Qui-Gon as someone who takes that responsibility and wouldn't blame the student. He'd look for the answer in himself first.
0: Yeah, and we've seen examples of that in the text where, you know, especially when he was talking to the Council about his miscommunication on Teth with Obi-Wan, how he would refuse to blame Obi-Wan. It was all about how he was letting his apprentice down,
1: and we see that he didn't give proper instructions.
0: Exactly, and and maybe Yoda was right there, where it's a two way street. Where Qui Gon, he, like I think you had me- you had mentioned his like self sacrificing nature here. Maybe that can play to his disadvantage, where he's maybe he's unnecessarily judging himself too hard. Where it's like he's maybe being a little bit stubborn here, where he's always returning to the fact like it's got to be something on me. It's got to be something I'm doing wrong. It's a very interesting struggle within himself where it's like, how do you reconcile being able to judge Obi-Wan, also being able to judge yourself? It's a very humbling moment from Qui-Gon too, I think, where he does realize that, first of all, that he had been very focused on judging Obi-Wan, but that there's also still room for him to grow. I do think that it's a positive that he's able to recognize his fault in that moment. So they do strike the deal with Pax and Rahara to use their ship. Pax is not too happy about it. He leaves the room to... Use the refresher. He's not leaving out of anger or anything, but he's still irritated at the Jedi. And Rahara kind of fills Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan in on Pax's past. So we know that he was raised by 3PO units, but we find out here the context in which that happened, where he was on a ship that got attacked by pirates, and he was small enough, young enough at the time to hide in a small hatch, but everyone else on the ship was killed and the ship went derelict and that's when he was raised by protocol droids for 15 years before the ship was found and it's horrible first of all for him to be the only survivor in the aftermath of it You know, we found out the horrifying reveal about Rahara and we see Pax here has seen some pain too. Oh yeah
1: and just thinking like this little five-year-old kid he climbs out of the equipment locker and that ship has gotta be a mess. After everyone on board got murdered, that has gotta be quite the scene for a little five year old to come out and see.
0: Exactly. I can't even imagine what must have been going through his head. You know, we don't know if his parents were on on board. I assume if he's a young kid traveling that his parents were there. Everyone else dead. It, It is, you know, he has been not the most likable of characters now, but we can see the reasons why. Beyond even the fact that he was raised by droids, we can see the pain that he's had to carry and how this might be part of the reason why he lets Rahara carry the soul that's within him is that maybe he doesn't know how to cope or to really come out with that pain it's so hard to read and i I can't even imagine
1: well yeah and doing the math he was like 19 or 20 before he got to interact with another Mm. living being someone other than a droid
0: Exactly. He's had a lot of cringe-worthy lines in this book so far, but now we can understand exactly why, because, yeah, he hadn't even spoken to another human being in 15 years. I can't even imagine. It's so much pain between the two of them. What an interesting pair we have in Pax and Rahara.
1: Well, and not to uh, diminish the pain or anything too much, but, you know, again, this is my twisted sense of humor thinking, growing up around protocol droids, what must puberty have been like for him? (laughs) Yeah. He obviously feels physical attraction because, you know, you see how he is towards Rahara. So it's like, what must puberty have been like, you know, going through that phase with only protocol droids around you?
0: Yeah, did they teach him sex ed? Did he go through, does he... (laughs) What did that process look like? (laughs) Master Pax,
1: this is how you treat a woman right.
0: (laughs) I don't even want to think about those lessons. (laughs) Let's stick to the language lessons. (laughs) Uh, and uh, the next scene is on this Zerka yacht where we find out about this tradition where the Zerka Corporation sector supervisor like throws this private party for the heir to Pajal's throne. It's a chance for them to have a chat. And I don't like the concept of that where it just seems like the opportunity for the Zerka Corporation to like further manipulate maybe their control over the crown in some way to further their own interests, get on the heir's good side. It just seems like an opportunity for the Zerka Corporation to kind of strengthen their foothold on Pejal, where, you know, and Fanry is a very young girl, too, where it's like, you're wondering here if Cole knows that she might have the chance to manipulate Fanry here. I wasn't a fan of this concept of how this is a tradition now, where the Zerka, they have that much influence, where this is expected to happen. Uh, it just, it didn't sit well with me.
1: Yeah, I drew kind of a disturbing parallel here. I just just finished a class about caribbean literature and it talks a lot about english imperialism moving Mm -hmm. in on the caribbean and being like okay yeah you've got your culture but ours is better Mm -hmm. we're better than you so you're gonna start doing things our way i mean we'll let you have your ruler there but he's gonna do things our way
0: That is a really great parallel there, you know, where we can only assume that the Zerka Corporation has those motives. They like, and I think Supervisor Cole even spoke to Rail about it when they were discussing Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan arriving. Would they understand the way that they do things there? And it's, ah, that's a really great point where the Zerkas want to maintain their way of running things. That is a brilliant point. And I like that connection with a very real world example there. It's a really great point. Yeah, the one that really
1: got me was, when Supervisor Cole was saying, and the docks reserved for some of the soul craft. Surely those could be put to more commercial use. Uh, yeah. oh, oh, this is a sacred religious tradition to these people you're wanting to take that away and use it for business for
0: transporting slaves it's terrible and we gather that fannery is very smart she's not letting this on to cole here but she knows exactly what she's doing you know she's feigning innocence like oh you know what kind of interest would you have here and she's baiting cole to answer because cole probably doesn't suspect that fannery is actually very competent (laughs) given Mm. her age i like fannery's thoughts here when they're talking about When she becomes queen, how even after signing the treaty, she won't have absolute authority, but she'll still have symbolic authority on Pijal. And I like how Fanry thinks about this. She's thinking to herself, quote, symbolic authority that had a nice ring. The sound of it, well, it was friendlier than absolute monarch, wasn't it? Kinder, more in touch with the greater galaxy, not cemented into the traditions of the past. It was something entirely new. I'm very impressed with just how smart of a ruler Fannery is showing to be, you know, even in, in her analytical thinking there, where she's recognizing the positive change, that symbolic authority, this, even if she won't be a traditional absolute monarch anymore. It kind of reminded me of very Padme-like approach here, where she's thinking about something new, a change for the better, and I thought of that parallel.
1: Yeah, but then of course, me being cynical and having to <laughs> rain on your parade there, I always kind of think, like, okay, she is really seeming like pro symbolic monarchy and everything. What's she hiding?
0: if there's something we can gather it's that everyone isn't showing all of their cards here. And we can gather from Fannery's conversation here that she is still holding some cards to herself, especially in the presence of Cole. She's not letting Cole onto everything here. (laughs) That's probably smarter of you to not entirely be sold on Fannery's motivations too, where everyone is a suspect here, especially given how intensive a situation it is with the opposition. That's uh, (laughs) very responsible of you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the whole thing about... Pijol is what's being hidden.
0: Exactly. The lessons can go deeper than just how they treat aesthetics and beauty. A very good point. And that's something to hold on to there. I like that a lot. Connecting that beyond architecture. That is really good. I love that. In the next scene, the final scene of the chapter, we're on the cruiser, the small Jedi cruiser, back to Pijol. And Obi-Wan is very indignant at the fact that they just bargained with thieves, as he's saying. And Qui-Gon is answering him. You know, on one hand, he kind of jokes, quote, jewel thieves. When you put it that way, it has a bit more panache, don't you think? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, that was another point from the Claudia Gray interview is, yeah, she loved the idea of Pax and Rahara being jewel thieves because she says, you should just have glamorous jewel thieves in everything.
0: <laughs> if you're going to have thieves, you want them to be the fanciest. They are the bougie thieves. Krygon <laughs> yep. also goes on to point out that Obi-Wan is dealing in absolutes here, right? He's dealing in moral absolutism to the point where he's just labeling them as as thieves, you know, how could we do this? This isn't the proper deal that Obi-Wan would have thought of making when it's like, oh, we're going to Bajal to figure things out. And Qui-Gon points out to Obi-Wan that, yes, they're jewel thieves, specifically jewel thieves, (laughs) but (laughs) they made a great sacrifice intervening to help the soul craft. And then it dawns on Obi-Wan where he says, quote, they're more than just thieves. I ought to have remembered that. And that tied back for me thinking about how Qui-Gon thought of Nim as more than just Raels Padawan and Obi-Wan's here realizing to himself they're more than just thieves. And we're seeing, although there's tension between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, his teachings are catching on even slightly with obi-wan which i thought this was a a nice moment where obi-wan's
1: humbling himself something i've noted is he sees everything in black and white you know moral absolutism when does he get to the point where it's old ben you see everything from certain points of view
0: <laughs> i like that when does that change Or i guess not really when does it happen but over the course of time it happens but that is a really great point where we're seeing exactly how he's on the opposite end of the spectrum here compared to how we knew him in a new hope that is a really great point here he's dealing in absolutes and then eventually when he's older and wiser it's from a certain point of view (laughs) that is a really great connection i love that and obi-wan's recalling something that qui-gon has told him before that quote people are more than their worst act and i think that's a brilliant lesson from qui-gon where we see qui-gon's personality and his compassion in that quote where he's able and willing to look past the mistakes people have made to see the person beneath and we can only wonder do you think that he'll be able to do that with rail
1: That is an excellent question. I mean, you always got to wonder, what is a person capable of at their worst moment? And do you hold that worst moment against them for the rest of their life? Or do you look past it and be like, this was a rough time for them. They are better than this. I think Qui-Gon is... The sort of person where he can get past it. I mean, it'd be a little harder for Obi-Wan with his, you know, black and white view of everything, but Qui-Gon is much more of a Shades of Grey sort of guy.
0: <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, you were talking about celibacy with the Jedi and what they might be up to in the nightlight. It's not.
1: <laughs> hey, yeah. Who's to say the Jedi got kinks?
0: Who's to say? <laughs> Uh, we do see that he has struggled with that so far where he's not easily able to let go of Rail's mistake, especially given the nature of his relationship with Obi-Wan right now. Those kind of issues from Master to Apprentice hit a little bit harder to Qui-Gon right now. So it's very interesting to see if, like you're saying, if he's gonna be able to push past that to see Rail for who he is now rather than holding him to his mistake that he made in the past. And this scene closes out where Obi-Wan is saying, but perhaps we should evaluate Jedi by criteria other than their dedication to the younger people they protect. It seems to hurt <laughs> reading that, and, mm-hmm. and, and that hits Qui-Gon on a personal note where he realizes just as Obi-Wan had taken what he had said before as an insult, Qui-Gon kind of felt the same way here, even though he's realizing Obi-Wan's just saying what he means. But given how wounded their connection and relationship is, even something like that where Obi-Wan's making what Qui-Gon is assuming to be just an innocent statement about what he believes, even those moments cut a little deep.
1: Well, and also Qui-Gon's already hard on himself, and then to hear that comment pushes it that much harder (laughs) for him, like, this is my fault. Everything that has happened between us is my fault. And he knows that Obi-Wan
0: is not trying to twist the knife, but the knife is twisted either way. And like you're saying, emphasizing the fault that Qui-Gon is placing on himself, whether he should or not. But it just shows how much more room there is to grow for the both of them. But the chapter does end with them feeling some anticipation about the Kyber prophecy, where they kind of shift the topic to that, and Qui-Gon's thinking about what this could mean. And he's kind of feeling the thrill of the chase again, like being the prophecy lover that he is, that he might be in the middle of one right now, and the chapter ends quote the orange glow of the colon crystals the kyber that is not kyber the time of prophecy
1: will be at hand
0: Gives you chills to end the chapter.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was mean, it's like you, you get to that and Qui-Gon's mind just got blown. It's like when you're watching a show or something and there's some mystery plot line they got going on. It's always in the background, very subtle, but then suddenly you notice some minute detail and it's like, holy crap, <laughs> that's what that means?! <laughs>
0: I can just imagine Qui Gon and Obi Wan back in their quarters with like a whiteboard, and they're just like, you know, connecting all these points. Like, well, like, this is it. We're in the middle of it now. And for Qui Gon, especially, this is like, this is what he lives for, you know? He loves prophecies. It's kind of like, I was watching Pirates of the Caribbean the other week. It's like when Barbosa says, like, uh, Have you ever heard of ghost stories, Miss Turner? Like, well, you're in one. And to Qui Gon, you've heard of prophecies, right, Qui Gon? Well, you're in one. <laughs> <laughs> and that is how the chapter ends. And that is how. How this episode ends. Keith, any last thoughts on some pretty good chapters that we've discussed?
1: I thought these were some very interesting interactions between the characters. And there was one thing that I noted. It was, uh, you know, going back into like, okay, what is everyone hiding in this? Mm. You gotta wonder, what specific tiny details do they point out? And this was back in Chapter 11, where, can't remember if it was Obi-Wan or Qui-Gon, who asked, have there been any attempts on Princess Fannery's life? And then there's just this tiny little reaction from Fanry where she looks at the ground and everything's like, oh, okay, why did they point out that reaction?
0: Yeah, what could that mean? It could could be nervousness at the fact that that hasn't happened yet. Maybe acknowledging that it could very well happen in the
1: Great Hunt. There is a specific reason. Maybe she's feeling guilty because other people are getting hurt, but she's the ruler. Why aren't they targeting her? Yeah,
0: I mean, I know that no one has died yet, but on the Soulcraft, that could have changed in an instant. They were able to avoid the loss of life, but you're right, especially because we saw how much she cares about her people when she was looking on the situation, like knowing that her people were in danger that they could suffer in that moment and maybe that it's about time that something might be directed towards her especially with this hunt coming up we've got to think something might happen here where it's only a matter of time before they target the very person who this treaty hinges on is the princess why hasn't that happened yet why has loss of life been avoided to this point barring what just happened with the Soulcraft? yeah we're just left to wonder is it about time and mm-hmm. it builds that <laughs> anxiety around the moment
1: <laughs> Yeah, that's all I got. So I'm going to stop wasting your time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, this has been Uh, this has been a really good discussion. I I love the (laughs) I love how bought in I am to the character of and Just like she is like just this adorable kid. You know, I love these lighthearted moments. You're just like, hang on. No, no, no! Everyone is a suspect right now. You're, you're, you're kind of like reining me in a little bit, helping me keep this very objective look of the on the situation. I <laughs> really appreciated your takes in this in these chapters. Oh, I'm glad my cynicism finally paid off for something. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's very, uh, very welcome on, on this podcast. I love this, the different personalities and points of view that the different guests bring on the show. So this has been a really, really fun few chapters to discuss, man. Um... I, know I appreciate you slumming it enough to let me on
1: <laughs>
0: and you will be coming back again on the on the schedule so <laughs> I'm, I'm excited just in for that. case I haven't
1: killed your listenership enough with this one episode
0: <laughs> I mean it's only gonna go you know the story is only going to get more intense from here so I'm really excited to see how these predictions and suspicions are gonna play out as we move on because you know it, it kind of does feel like a big game of who done it and we wonder mm. how the Sherlock Watson um, if that's gonna come out a little bit with Pax rahara qua got it Obi-Wan as they try to get to the bottom of this, especially now that they're going to be investigating on the moon. So we shall see. But Keith, thank you so much for making the time, man, to talk to Master Apprentice. This has been really fun. I really appreciate it.
1: I appreciate you having me on here.
0: And before we close up today, I will give our discussion question for these chapters. Obi-Wan is very indignant at his master, having struck a deal with Pax and Rahara, specifically because they are jewel thieves. Although Qui-Gon reminds him that the two are more than just thieves... Obi-Wan remains somewhat frustrated. Is Obi-Wan's qualm here specific to his personal growth and development, or do you think his issue here reveals some larger truths about the mentality of the Jedi Order? And listeners, I will post the question to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please send us a response on any of those platforms or by email to outerrimreadspod at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay up to date on the show and our discussion questions, feel free to give us a follow on Twitter at outerrimreadpod and on Facebook and Instagram at outerrimreadspod. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha, it is hosted by Andrew Geha, it is produced by Andrew Geha, and it is edited by Connor Floyd. We will be back in two weeks with episode 27. So until then, sit back and enjoy. Watch out for that bar fight over there. Looks like one of them brought a shovel to a lightsaber fight.